I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The thing that's great about this this mission is that it's fundamental human exploration. We don't have that many opportunities to do that anymore. We've been all the places on the Earth. We've been to all our local planets. But this is a kind of asteroid that seems to be different from all the other ones. So we're going to find out things that are going to surprise us. That's Lindy Elkins-Tanton, principal investigator of a space mission to a mysterious asteroid called Psyche. Lindy has had a remarkable career in science, overcoming personal and professional obstacles with grace and humor. She's written about her life in an inspiring memoir, a portrait of the scientist as a young woman. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. This is so great. Your book, A Portrait of the Scientist as a Young Woman, is extraordinary. I'm telling you, I was so caught up in it. You not only so accurately describe your growth as a person and a scientist, but you make me feel while you do it. Oh, I'm so happy. I could not imagine a kinder word from someone who is so uh, clear about communication as yourself. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. The communication really does mean a lot to me. And I'm just so grateful to see such fine communication as this. And your personal struggle, uh, the idea that you went from horrible childhood abuse and struggles mm. with PTSD and depression, and you went from exploring the, if I could put it this way, exploring the core of a young woman to exploring <laughs> the core of a planet. Yes. yes. Yes, I, and I think that's, it's so apt, and I've thought about this a lot. I think we're all drawn to study things that are metaphors of our internal landscapes. Well, you certainly are. Now, what about the thing that's the metaphor, the Psyche mission for NASA? Psyche used to be a, a baby planet? We think probably, but but here's what's great about this mission that uh, uh, we're in review right now and we're, we're hoping to launch in a year. Um, the thing that's great about this this mission is that it's fundamental human exploration. We don't have that many opportunities to do that anymore. We've been all the places on the Earth. We've been to all our local planets. But this is a kind of asteroid that seems to be different from all the other ones. So we're going to find out things that are going to surprise us. So right now we say we think it's probably part of the metal core of a tiny planet that failed in the early planet-forming process. It didn't become part of the Earth or Mars, and it got stranded out in the asteroid belt. But frankly, and I, I think that probably... Everything I say about it today is going to be proven to be wrong when we get there. That's what's so exciting. <laughs> Which will probably thrill you. Yes, completely, completely. It seems that you can learn about the core of our own Earth, which is almost impossible to find out much about because it's so hot and so far down. But you can learn about it by this thing, this psyche thing, planetesimal, which is a floating core itself, right? I mean, the, the, everything but the core has been stripped away by collisions. Is that the idea? That's our, you know, that's our hypothesis, she says, like a scientist. It's our best <laughs> guess. You know, there's, there's only one thing like Psyche out there in the solar system. There's only one big asteroid that seems to be made mostly of metal. And when I talk about this mission now for years and I'm talking to scientists, I always ask them, what could Psyche be that we haven't thought of yet? 
because that's just our best guess, that the rock mm. was stripped away through many, many impacts, leaving the metal core exposed in a way, as you say, we could never see our Earth's one. Um, so maybe that's what Psyche is. That's our guess. So if that's what it turns out to be, you're, you have a way to read what constitutes it, what, what's going on in it, that gives us yeah. information about our own core? Yes, yes. So these metal cores that are inside inside Mercury and Venus and the Earth and Mars, and even the Moon has a little metal core, and we can't ever visit them, as you said. It's way too hot. There's way too much pressure. But we'd really like to know more about it. And so maybe this is a piece of a core out there that we can look at. So we're sending this beautiful, brave robotic spacecraft we hope, out there to take pictures and to measure a magnetic field. We hope there's a magnetic field. And then what is it made of is the, the question you were asking. And there's this um, almost miraculous science instrument called a, a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer that while we're in orbit around Psyche, because we're not going to land, while we're in orbit, it can actually read gamma rays and neutrons being given off by the surface of Psyche and through those tell exactly what the composition of the surface is. Ah, it's an amazing instrument. Yeah. You raise an interesting question in my mind. You're not going to land on it. After you get a lot of readings, what happens to the spacecraft? Yeah. The, well, our favorite extended mission idea right now is just that we'll circle down, orbit down closer and closer and closer, getting better and better data as we get closer ah. and closer. And um, that's especially exciting to me from a camera point of view. I really believe that space exploration is for all of humanity. And one of the things that we set up, uh, Jim Bell, who's the professor in charge of the cameras and the team, is a pipeline so that the images we take from the spacecraft will be available on the internet to everyone on Earth within a half hour of our getting them. So we're not going to curate them or process them. We're going to let everyone see just what we're seeing so we can all wonder at once, what is this? Oh, this is going to be very exciting. What interests me, one of the things that interests me a lot, is that you're heading this really complicated, expensive mission into outer space. And I'm interested in to know how you gained the ability to lead. I mean, I remember one story you tell in the book about a mentor you had at MIT who didn't like it that you asked questions. Yeah, and that, if you can't ask questions, you can't get anywhere. It kind of stunts you. How did you not get stunted by that? Oh, I'm sure I did. And 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 your kind assertion that I'm successfully leading this is something that could be in question too. <laughs> Don't we all make mistakes all the time? Um, I think that I've been helped in this by having worked in the private sector for about a decade before I went back for my doctorate. And and this is part of the story that I was excited to tell in my book, because I think that there's a stereotype about scientists that we knew when we were three years old, we were going to do this for the rest of our lives. And it's often just not true. And it's not true for me. I didn't even start my doctorate until I was in my 30s, which is a sort of a imprint of failure and, you know, should be, you're not supposed to be able to do that. But those 10 years I spent in business taught me things about how humans work together in teams that I never would have learned in academia. And it's just filled me with this conviction that no matter what humans are doing, it's an endeavor about humans doing something. 
uh, whatever the outcome is that we're trying to do, whether it's writing a book together or whether we're doing science or we're in a company, it's the human endeavor that defines it. And so how can we help all of us to work together better? And that's what I try to do. So my guess is you would be the uh, the negative image of the professor who said, don't ask so many questions. Yeah, there there's, I think, in some parts of academia, at least, and maybe elsewhere, this idea that if you ask questions, you're showing your weakness. You're showing you didn't already know or you couldn't figure it out on your own. And the idea that ignorance is somehow weakness is certainly a fallacy. And so we've actually designed a whole education program around showing people how they can ask better and better questions and encouraging them to ask them, because I do think that's kind of a superpower. It seems to me that the way you describe this phenomenon in academia and in science that you call the hero model, Mm. where one genius scientist figures something out, and from then on he's at, and usually it's a he, is at the apex (laughs) of all further studies, and it all has to go through him. Yes. And he owns it. He owns the new ideas. Yep. I would love to hear what you have to say about this with all the years you spent working with academics. But yes, this was a paradigm that um, I think was most strongly begun in the 18th century in Germany when it became generally acknowledged that charisma and fame were a key part of success in teaching and research. But as soon as it depends upon your charisma and your fame, then what you're fighting to do is protect those things. And that can be the opposite of trying to humbly seek the truth. Is there a place for it? Do you want to eliminate the hero model altogether, or do you want to make an alternative model that can work where it doesn't work, or what? How do you you see it? Yeah, I I mean, I, I see very successful researchers who prefer to work on their own with their own lab group, um, and they want to pursue their own questions under their own leadership. And there's nothing inherently bad about that. That has brought us so far in the last millennia. That's how we've discovered what we know. But a lot of the big questions that we have to answer for the future of humanity require multiple disciplines to cooperate. And so I just want to bring more cooperation and better inclusive culture to the excellence that already exists. I don't want to tear it down. You know, you remind me that at the Alder Center for Communicating Science, where we've trained thousands of scientists to communicate better, the big surprise for me was that I thought we were helping them communicate with the public. And it turns out (laughs) an equally valuable thing we were teaching them was how to communicate with other scientists. This is completely true. And I can tell you, I know it firsthand because in three organizations that I've led, I've hired your teams from that group in Stony Brook to come out and train us. Oh, and, um, that's uh, wonderful. Thank you for telling me Three different me that. times. They've been so excellent. And uh, I found that one of the, the hardest barriers to break were the senior graduate students, the postdocs, and the young career uh, faculty, so the people right in the beginning of their career who believed that a hallmark of excellence was that they could use all the jargon correctly in their field. Mm. And that way they were talking absolutely clearly to five other people. And and even if you're one half of a step away from what they study, you couldn't understand them. So your teams helped us break through that. Yeah. And it's funny how, no matter how sharp people are, in their own field, they sometimes need more than one way to hear about it. That's, I think, one of the benefits of having interdisciplinary projects, 
because each person has to explain it to the other in a way that they can understand. And there is a discovery process in doing that. You learn things about what you're working on and you learn what you don't understand too. How did you learn to lead without dominating? Mm. Or was it just natural in you? If you just plunge in and say, I'm not going to dominate everybody, then somebody's likely to dominate you. Somebody else is happy to step up. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. From, I feel like it's it's a constant juggling act. Uh, it, you know, part of it is I try all the time to get everyone in the room able to be heard. And um, I think that is so critical, not just for equity and for people to rise on their merits, but also, frankly, for the success of the project. Because it's the person, as you say, not the leader, but the person who's actually doing the work with their hands, who knows what the big problem is, who can explain to you what the challenge or the risk is. And so I always want everybody to speak. And then, uh, so I try to set up norms, um, kind of cultural norms, maybe explicit and maybe implicit that everyone is expected and welcome to speak. Maybe people don't speak twice until everyone's spoken once. That's a kind of a Quaker business meeting tradition that I really mm. love. And sometimes just talking about those things helps the people who um, want to dominate the conversation rein themselves in a little bit and realize it's they're not going to be underestimated or underappreciated, but they're going to follow a kind of a process. But there's always the challenge. There's always the person who won't listen or the person who wants to dominate. And I don't have a great answer for that. It's not always easy to figure out how to stand up and say, no, I'm sorry, actually, I'm in charge, uh, in, not in so many words. I've had to actually say those words when I was directing once. <laughs> Did it work? A little bit, but not fully. I, the, there you go. The rushing in to take over is so interesting because you're introducing a vulnerability. You're introducing the notion of vulnerability. And a lot of people don't take to that idea very easily. That's right. That's really right. And that the other thing that comes along with that vulnerability of not rushing in is um, being willing to sit with the uncomfortable situation where we don't know the answer yet. We don't have to rush to an answer. and We're not ready to find an answer. We're still in the discovery phase. And for a lot of people, that's very uncomfortable landscape. And they want to rush in with their answer. Yeah, you were talking, I remember in the book, you were talking about exploring the Siberian basalts. I don't know what a basalt is. What is it? <laughs> if, if the mantle of our earth, the rocky stuff that's right under what we walk on, if you melt it a little bit, then the lava that comes out is called a basalt. So it's the I first... See magma that comes out of our planetary interior. It's like what comes out of Hawaii. And you were over there in Siberia with a senior scientist on your team, who I believe you said had much more experience than you. Much but he more. answered he answered every statement with some kind of absolute certainty that shut yes. off any discussion. How did you handle that? <sighs> I didn't handle it well at all because I didn't I didn't have enough ammunition to argue through his assertions. Um, so in, in one case, he asserted that what looked like a very promising piece of rock to me, like way up on a cliff, not easy to get to, but maybe central to our investigation to get that sample. And he said, that is absolutely not what you're interested in. Don't even bother. But it turned out the next year, part of our team was back in that area and they went up and got that rock and it was what we wanted. And so that's a kind of a sad lesson to me that I wasn't able to argue strongly enough at the time, but we were saved by their persistence in the following year. 
And parenthetically, it really struck me that you found evidence that one of the great extinctions, I think about 250 million years ago, of all multicellular life was due to stuff going into the air at that time that we're now putting in the air ourselves. It's absolutely unbelievable. And uh, I think we really showed this without a shadow of a doubt, but it, but long before we showed it, people who study climate were saying that that time, 252 million years ago, that extinction was the closest analog to what's happening today on Earth. And at that time, it was volcanoes. But amazingly, not only did the volcanoes put carbon dioxide and sulfur into the air, things that we know are bad and that we're doing now, they actually baked chlorofluorocarbons out of the crust and put them in the air also. They were naturally occurring ozone-destroying chemicals, really mm. similar to the refrigerants we use today and very strong greenhouse gases. So all the same mixture of terrible atmospheric change was happening then, and it killed over 90% of the species in the oceans and over 70% on land. Wow. And the same stuff was getting poured in that we're doing. The same stuff. And I, I had some interesting conversations with uh, film crews and production people at various um, television outlets around the time that we were doing this very scenic and amazing fieldwork in the middle of Siberia. And a couple times I was told, you know, we don't want to do a show on this because it's just too depressing. <laughs> While we're on that track, do you think you should avoid depressing people? Or is that a way? <laughs> What's the way to get them to do something? Some people think scaring them works. Some people think only presenting them with the positive actions they can take and showing them that the crowd is going that way and hoping for some kind of mm. herd allegiance is the way to do it. Well, to me personally, just a doomsday story is never is never the answer. And we have a little family motto that my husband made up, no whining without action. So you can complain <laughs> about it and feel like it's horrible, but then you got to do something. And so, uh, you know, this is part of why I love space exploration, because so many of the narratives we're living in right now, pandemic, climate change, all of the political things, they're, they're really narratives of fear and doubt and sadness. But if you think about the possible futures of humanity, there are beautiful ones. And so let's take those things we need to work on and realize that we can work on them. And to me, the secret for myself, and I hope for a lot of people, is a sense of agency and a sense of empowerment, and the idea that we could take, take action and make change. Do you think that works? My guess is the positive probably has more appeal than the negative. However, I think it's positive to look reality in the face and accept it. Yeah. I think maybe we ought to train ourselves more to say, this is what's real and wishing won't yes. make it otherwise. That's really good. So instead of denying something that's devastating and pushing it away which really I don't think works on any level. It's something I learned I couldn't do, for example, with my childhood trauma. I couldn't deny it and push it away. But just to accept it, it doesn't come with a judgment. It's just the truth. And then you can decide what you want to do about it. When we come back from our break, Lindy Elkins-Tanton describes in vivid detail the immense effort needed to get approval for the Psyche mission an effort she led while being treated for ovarian cancer. 
Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Lindy Elkins-Tanton. The proposal to explore the asteroid psyche was just one of many proposals NASA receives, and I asked Lindsay about the experience of competing for funding. There were three full years of competition, and, uh, and, and large portions of those were made up of writing two separate proposals, the first one and then a second one. And while you were doing that with a team of over 100 people, you were undergoing ovarian cancer at the same time. The strength you had to compartmentalize your life, it just, I tell you, it gave me strength reading it. Because you're so detailed, the details are so telling. I'm glad you found them that way, because I feel like that's one place where I could connect with so many people who go through uh, very difficult illnesses. You know, we are in the end trapped inside our bodies and trying Mm. to overcome those limitations as they're thrown upon us when we still want to do something else with our lives. I was very lucky because it got detected extremely early and all the blessings to Mayo Clinic, they saved my life. Um, But the chemotherapy was punishing. Um, Mm. And, you know, that was eight years ago now. And I'm, my body is still recovering. I'm glad to say I still am recovering. And my recovery rate is slightly faster than my aging rate. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but, but, the, but, the, but the strain of that effort every day to try to, to try to do the work and the things I cared about and not to be overcome by the tending to my illness, you know, that's exhausting. And I can still feel that exhaustion now. There's nothing easy about it. And I know that I'm saying the words that many, many people feel. That's really great. After you made your proposal, there was this surprise. It came as a surprise to me reading your book, and I get the impression it came as a surprise to you that you had to do what they call the site visit. Oh, my goodness. Where you had to defend in person <laughs> your mission to NASA. And, they, and what, did they try to make it as hard for you as they could? It sounds like it was like a doctoral thesis defense quintuple. Oh my goodness, it was. We we described it as as a, a doctoral defense on steroids done as a Walt Disney super production. <laughs> you know, there was parts of the building were repainted and there was art everywhere and we had 140 people on site and we had the people presenting and then we had the we had the 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 tiger team in the back room that was we'd hired we brought people in who had our same knowledge kind of one for one with the presentation team so that if we got a question 
question. They could be working on it while we were talking about something else. We had runners back and forth. I mean, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. So exciting. And you rehearsed. You Mm -hmm. did a mock site visit before where it sounds like your own team almost (laughs) destroyed you. They did. They did. That's one where they really were trying to make it as hard on us as possible. And they were really beating us up in the presentation. Uh, And these presentations, you know, it's all day standing up in front of um, uh, a couple of dozen people for review and all the rest of the team and everything rides upon it. It's, it's, you know, three years of work plus at least three years before that, three years of proposal work and before that, three years of preparation. For other missions, it's decades of preparation because they've been through this more than once. And it's your science that you want to do. It's your NASA partner. It's your industry partner. It's literally hundreds of people's, of job, people's jobs for a decade or more than a decade in the future. There's a lot resting on it, and the pressure is unbelievable. And I, I loved how you not only were prepared scientifically for whatever they might ask. You also made sure they had convenient parking spaces, that <laughs> you had a mark on a, a little X on the floor where it was the best place for you to stand to get the best light. <laughs> we needed you to come direct us. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. It, it was like mounting a Broadway show. It really, really was. We, we checked the light through the, through the Venetian blinds at all the times of day to make sure nobody would get it in their eyes. Oh, um, that's, the, yeah, <laughs> I remember reading, I thought, bravo, the, the idea that you were considering what everyone in your audience would be going through yes, while you were talking to them. Not just that's hearing what it. you were saying, but the whole experience. The whole experience, and it it just comes directly back to also science communications, like you're saying, because we realized a couple of weeks or maybe a couple months before the site visit that we'd chosen the instruments we wanted to fly to make the science measurements of this asteroid based on what is fundamentally like a little video recording that we had rolling in our heads of how we think Psyche was created in those first couple of million years of the solar system, how it clumped together and the metal sank into the middle to make a core, and then it was struck by impactors and the rock was knocked off, and there it is in the asteroid belt. And we realized that no one was going to be able to understand how we designed the spacecraft, why we designed it the way we did, unless we gave them that little video recording. So we Mm. ended up making flip books so that the review board could go through the flip book and see the evolution of the asteroid the way we saw it. Oh, wow, that's great. So after all of that, after years of preparation, you finally got the call that Psyche had been selected by NASA as a real mission. What did you go through when you got that call? That was just... I was one of the most pure moments of joy of my whole life. Uh, and I, I would even, you know, and this is maybe not the most apt thing, but I, I would even compare it to the moment of the birth of my son, who I love so dearly. But there's a lot of, you know, there's fear at that moment too. Like, how is he? Is he okay? And what's going to happen next? And what should I do? But the moment of the call from NASA was just a simple emotion of elation. It was just the elation part after all of that effort on behalf of so many people um, to get that call. And um, right away I started, because I wasn't expecting to be selected. I was expecting to get a no call, but we got a yes Mm. call. 
and I was wakened in the morning. I was in sound sleep and the phone woke me up and the connection kept cutting out because I was way up in the hills in Massachusetts and they hadn't called on the landline that called on my cell phone. So it was all kind of chaotic and I was still asleep and I couldn't quite disguise that in my voice, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and and then I thought, oh, I've got to I've got to call my son and my husband, and I've got to call my brother. I've got to call the president of the university, and I have to call the people on the team. And and then I thought, no, I just have to sit with this moment for a second because this is a really big one for my. This is the moment when all the rest of my working life changes. And um, I was by myself in a little house we have up in the hills in Massachusetts, and I just I turned off the kettle from my coffee water and I shut down the flue on the wood stove and I just put on my boots and I walked up into the woods in the snow and I just smelled the trees in the snow and looked up at the sky and thought about how everything had changed so I could just let that feeling sink in. And then I went back and made all these phone calls, which was so much fun. (laughs) And I love how you, you mentioned that getting that yes was not like winning a prize where the next day your life goes on, you're the same person you were the day before. But rather than that, after that yes call, that's when an amazing amount of work was just beginning yes. to actually put the mission together and do it. Yep. Yeah, I feel that really deeply. And I, I mean, I have been fortunate to win some prizes in science and it's lovely. There's not a thing wrong with it. It's a thrill to be recognized that way. Um but it is over in a moment. And, and a much better kind of winning is the kind of winning that lets you go on and do something more that you couldn't have done otherwise. And so we worked for six years to um, win this competition and, and be flown by NASA to become a real mission. We competed against 27 other proposals and we won. And But that, as you say, was just the beginning. I mean, that was a lifetime's worth of work to get to that point. But then we had to finish designing and actually build the spacecraft and get it to launch. And we're just at, we hope, the end of that process right now. And, and if we are fortunate and we launch next year, again, that's a huge win and a huge success. But it's just the beginning of the actual trajectory of the spacecraft through space. But after what I guess was a year of hard work of putting that together, you were ready to launch around August or so, mm. and it got postponed. Why Why was it postponed? Oh, my goodness. So complicated. Yeah, so we were selected in 2017, and we were supposed to launch in 2022. And so um, from 2017 to 2020, we were preparing and finishing the design and testing and doing risk analyses. And then we uh, we went through our, our, um, our critical design review just about two months after COVID hit. And we were the first remote review that that NASA ever did, where the, all the people being reviewed were not in the same place. And that because critical design COVID. review, because of COVID, and that review is the one that, that allows you to start really building the spacecraft. And so mm. the difficulty of building this gigantic spacecraft, uh, when its solar arrays are unfolded, it'll be the size of a singles tennis court. And, mm. and the project is many hundreds of millions of dollars. And the challenge of building that during COVID was overwhelming because you can't build a spacecraft remotely. You have to be there. And JPL closed for a number of months when COVID hit really hard. And then, of course, as happened to all of us, people are worried about their family members. They're caring for their families. They're home with their little kids. They're sick themselves. And we almost 
made it. We almost made it. The team was so incredible. We finished building all the hardware and we didn't quite finish uh, the software. The software just needed more work. And so we made the incredibly difficult decision last summer to uh, to, to say we're not going to launch in August. We're not going to launch this fall. But you're planning uh, about a year from now to launch? We hope so. We're still in the review process. We need the NASA approval of our replan and the NASA final decision for us to go forward. And that'll um, their final decision will come in about a month. And so we hope, with good luck, um, that they will approve of all of the plans that we've made and the fixes we put in place. And if that's true and we're approved, we will launch in October of 2023. So one more year. So if you get the approval in a couple of months... Will you continue to tinker or will you just say, mm-hmm. hope for the best, hope we didn't forget anything and, and take <laughs> off? Oh, my goodness. I think you do understand what a profound question that is, because there are always more tests you can do and always more fixes you can make. And so we've actually been going through this whole process to look at all the decisions we made and decide which ones might have been made in a little bit too much haste and need to be checked again and which ones we can let go. And then making sure that they all fit into the work um, that will that will allow us to launch next fall. So that's a very profound question. We don't have all the answers yet. But it may turn out to be a bonus. I think so. It will be better. We'll be in better shape, absolutely. We're running out of time, unfortunately, because there's so much to ask you about. But before we end our conversation, we always end every show with seven quick questions. Questions. Okay, I'm ready. They're roughly to do with communication. First one is, in just in general, among all the things you could choose, what do you wish you really understood Oh, I wish I really understood what allowed every individual person to feel that they had the power to make change in their lives. I think that's the most important thing of all. It's not even planetary science. (laughs) No, no, it doesn't have to be. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, I like um, the yes and way of talking to people, the improv methodology. Tell me how you do it, I did, because everybody has a different version of that. How do you do it? First of all, the idea, how, do you, how would you describe what yes and is? Well, instead of just immediately telling a person, you are wrong, I know the answer, which just shuts down all conversation and often even shuts down learning. You know, we can't learn when we're in a sort of fight or flight situation. And so, uh, and so to, to go about it in a, um, a more inclusive way, because if a person has said that they know something, they've invested themselves in it. And so what I try to do is say, well, I wonder if something else might be true, or could, could there be an aspect that you haven't considered, something, something that would allow our, our worlds to combine instead of collide? doesn't always work, but it's a thought. Sounds like the yes part for you is acknowledging that they came to some conclusion that's not worthy of scorn, but worthy of listening to. That's right. Exactly. And there could be something else. And there might be more. Yeah. And and isn't that the way that all of science is like that? Much of what we think is right now will be proven to be wrong or amended in some way in the future. We have to stay open to that. It's so different, though, when instead of yes and, there's yelling. Uh. You're you're wrong. <laughs> you, you have no right to say it. Get out of here. You know, <laughs> kind of the opposite. Uh, okay, next next question. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I've been asked, um, I'm not going to tell you the exact questions, but I've been asked a lot of pretty intimate questions about my life and my marriage and motherhood and things like that by other young women in science who are trying to figure out how their lives might go. And sometimes uh. those questions are a little awkward. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that. Yeah. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I like to say something like, you know, Alan, I really appreciate all of that uh, uh, information that you've just helped us to learn about. And I wonder whether Robin has something to say about it also. <laughs> Does that work if Robin is not even there? Uh, I always try to pick a person who has been making facial expressions like they have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what you do when you're just face to face with somebody. Oh, that's so hard. I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, I oh, don't either. I, yeah, do you, do you have an answer to that? No, most people say they say I have to go to the bathroom. That would, yeah, exactly. I forgot my brownies in the oven. I'll see you maybe <laughs> never. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? Mm. Well, sometimes there's some... Um, current topic to discuss, but I really like to ask people what they like to do with their time. What are their favorite things to do? Rather than asking, what's your job, which is mm. kind of the classic American thing, but to find out what the person's actual passion for doing things is. Sometimes that works. Next to last, what gives you confidence? Mm. When you ask me that question, the thing that comes to my mind is, what gives me confidence that humans are going to be able to solve the challenges in front of us and move forward, which is maybe not quite what you were asking, but it's what comes into my mind. And, right. and the answer is the, the, um, the energy and the optimism of young people. I really see great things at the universities uh, where, I, where I have um, footholds, and that gives me a lot of hope and confidence. Well, from you, that gives me confidence, too. The last question is, what book changed your life? Oh. Oh, my goodness. A million books changed my life. I write about them in my book. But the book that most recently changed my life is Andrea Wolf's book, The Invention of Nature, the biography of Alexander von Humboldt. Um, the ideas in that book are so mind-expanding and thrilling. That, that book recently changed my life. Well, that's a good description of your book, and I, ah. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. What a pleasure. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Lindy Elkins Tanton is Vice President of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. She's also the Principal Investigator of NASA's Psyche Mission. 
Just two weeks ago, NASA gave the go-ahead to launch next October, just as Lindy and her team had hoped. The mission's website is psyche.asu.edu. Lindy's wonderful memoir is titled A Portrait of the Scientist as a Young Woman. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is the last episode of Clear and Vivid Season 18, and as always, Graham and I will be back next week to give you a preview of our next season. Our first guests on Clear and Vivid will be the marvelous Melissa McCarthy and her equally marvelous husband, Ben Falcone. Here's Melissa describing how they met. You know, you you are not presenting your most attractive self in a comedy troupe, an improvising troupe. You know, everyone's trying to be the weirdest, the most awful. So the fact that we both were like attracted to each other is kind of amazing. I can picture your first date where he says, that's not who I thought you were at all. I want that other one. I think he's still saying that. <laughs> but I, we sat next to each other the first day and um, we just hit it off kind of from the very first second. Everyone was so loud and crazy, including myself. You know, you're in this class for the first time, you're you're nervous and you're pushing too hard. And then Ben got up there and was the quietest, calmest, and he made everybody lean forward to listen. So check in next week for a longer preview of my conversation with Melissa and Ben, as well as glimpses of some of the other fascinating guests on season 19 of Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>